Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Nedarim, daf Ayin Bet, page 72. So page 72 opens in the middle of a discussion of assessment of a particular uh, brighta that is at the bottom of uh, 71, I'm a bet. Um, and it's a little bit, I don't know, it's a few lines from the bottom. I'm going to read them simply so that we have the context for what to discuss on on Ayin Bet. So the question was posed to the sages when a husband divorces his wife after she's taken a vow, is that considered like silence or is that considered like upholding the vow? Shtika meaning uh, silence, or hakama, as we've said before, this ratification of the vow by virtue of the fact that he didn't undo it. He didn't make any attempt to revoke it. So therefore, again, is it simply that he's being silent or is it um, upholding it? Now, the whole question, this this by itself um, is worthy of a lot of discussion and the commentaries certainly do that. The Gemara asks straight up, what is the difference between these two assessments, if it's Shtika or if it's Hakama? So, for example, let's say, you know, I mean, let's establish for one moment that the point is that once they're divorced, he can't do this anymore, right? So the point is that when she takes a vow, the husband hears the vow, divorces her, Right, and then the the Gemara suggests that there's a real difference, a real practical halachic difference. If they would remarry in that same day, right? Then Then in the event that um, it was like silence, right? Then he can now come and nullify the vow or revoke the vow in this second marriage about the previous marriage's event of this vow, or if it's like a hakama, a ratification of the very vow that she made, then he can't revoke it now because via the process of divorce, he's essentially upheld it. Now, this is an, to me, this is an interesting jump to a practical case that would make the difference between them. I could, but maybe it is the first place to go. Meaning, I think we would have to work hard to figure out where is a difference between, I mean, either way, the vow is going to be in place because it hasn't been revoked. So then the question of what difference does it make, whether he's just allowed it to be, to stand by being silent, right? There's a principle in Allah of shtika kahoda dami, this idea that being silent is like affirmation uh, or similar to affirmation, right? So, you know, it doesn't necessarily ratify it, but since he's not revoking it, then isn't that good enough? So this, I do find this um, this practical difference case to be a little bit far flung, but perhaps it was also you know relevant if there was, I don't know, I don't know why they're getting divorced and remarried on the same day either, but in terms of establishing the conceptual framework, it, it does that. So now the now we're on to Ahmed Aleph of Ayin Bet, and the Gemara is going to kind of probe this, the practical issues of this breita Tashma. So here's a suggestion, says the Gemara. What, what if they say, 
when the the in the case of the husband who died, when the husband dies, the authority to revoke the young woman's vows goes to the father. And if the husband did not hear the vow, or if he heard the vow and then he revoked it, or heard it and then was silent, and then he died, right? So all of those cases um, would apply, right? They would be comparable to this kind of case. You want to say that the divorce itself is like silence, that's this breita, or that's the possibility within this breita. Meaning, then you don't have, that it's not this narrow case. You could apply it to other situations where indeed he heard the vow and then he came and divorced her. The very fact that it doesn't teach it in that way, the very fact that it doesn't teach a whole slew of cases like that it's like silence, then we can understand that divorce is like hakama, that it's like approving or ratifying the vow. Aima Seifa, the Gemara does not like the proof of the of the Breita, namely, Aval im shama vikiyem, o shama vishatak, o made by yom shel acharav, so let's say, for example, the end part, right? What's the end of the breita? He hears it and he ratifies it, or he hears it and he's silent, and then he dies the next day. And the father, in this case, cannot come and negate the vow, nullify the vow, revoke it. If you want to say that gerushin is like upholding it, that it is similar to upholding it, then you would want, you again could introduce that same other case where the father is part of the story and but the wording should line up to include that case as well but the very fact that it does not the mission the breaks here does not include the language that way and so rather we could say the very fact that that language is not there teaches us that really divorce is like silence meaning the attempt to reread this breita in light of the previous discussion of the possibility of the father being there um, can be read in either direction. You could read it as support for the approach that says it is hakama, ratification of her vow, or the divorce itself is ratification of her vow, or you could read it as support for the idea that divorce is like silence. Ella meha lekala mishma mine. Rather, the Gemara says you can't learn anything from this Breita about divorce in relation to her vow. So the Gemara says that we've got this discrepancy between the beginning and the end. Just look at it as a stylistic issue because once you've got a first, once you have the first issue, you could explain the second line, the second half of the Breita in the context of the first and vice versa, right? So at the end of the day, you end up. Um, you know, when you look at it that way, you can argue the case either way, and you don't have any uh, definite conclusion from, in terms of meaning, from the Breita. So the Gemara goes on, Tashma, Nadra, Vihi Arusa. Now, this is a different Mishnah. It's no longer talking about the Breita we've just said. I want to note before, actually, I go on, I should have said this before, that the rationale, my rationale, I guess, for talking about this particular Breita at the top of this stuff is the very fact that the Gemara gives attention to it, even though the conclusion of it is that we can't learn from it, right? The Gemara still gives it the time of day, still follows through the logic, and then works hard to try to come to a solution before it says, 
no, that doesn't work. And, you know, we talk a lot about how the Gemara is not simply a straight work of halacha. This right that doesn't bring us real practical, I mean, except for that one example of the practical case uh, of the practical difference, it, it isn't a practical break it in that way. And yet the Gemara gives it the time of day to explore the parameters of this material, which I think is worthy of us to note. It's also why people sometimes get frustrated with learning Gemara and they say, what's the point of this if it's, you know, if it's kind of a dead end anyway. So the Gemara goes on though to say, we've got this Mishnah, it's on an Aleph, meaning we've just seen this Mishnah as well. Nadra vehi arusa this is the case of Philomea, where she um, where she takes a vow when she's betrothed, she gets divorced, she gets betrothed again, and even up to a hundred. That's directly a citation from the Mishnah. So let's learn then from this Mishnah that the, the divorce is like silence, because if it were ratification, because how could that be then that the final person she's married to could um, revoke a vow that the first person had upheld, right? The implication being that if the if it had been upheld by anyone else along the way till she gets to the last one to revoke it, then then it would not they could not come and revoke it because it's already been um, ratified. It's already been kind of cemented into her obligations of what she has to do. The fact, the very fact that the last betrothed person here, again, it could be just the second person. It doesn't have to be a hundred. But then the fact that he can undo the vow that she has made while she was betrothed to someone else indicates that it simply must be silence from on his part and not an active act of um, of hakama of ratification. Because the, the Gemara doesn't like this either. But we don't know for a fact that the first the first person she was betrothed to actually heard the vow. And therefore, divorce might have nothing to do with the, the vow. And therefore, you can't say that it would have counted as ratification or not. What's the significance of the fact that the divorce happened on that same day as the vow? It doesn't all have to be in the same day, right? Even if she gets divorced from the betrothal, you know, from the betrothal on one day, and then a hundred days later she gets betrothed to somebody else, presumably the fact that the first guy never heard the vow, he could still nullify it later. Like, what's this detail of it all happening on the first day? Why would that matter if it was like silence? Um, so the suggestion then is that, you know, that perhaps it still could be a matter of, um, it, it, I want to say it's a matter of happenstance, right? Like it's the the fact that he doesn't, the fact that he does divorce her does not mean anything about the vow. So the Gemara answers, but in the case where the betrothed man did not hear it, but the father did hear it, the bobayom who dematsi mefer, that's where the father can in fact come and nullify the vow. Revoke the vow, rather. Afilo aval. I'm sorry, aval mikan ve'elech lo matzi mefer. But then later, like on other days, that's not going to work. So um, this case kind of the Gemara removes this case from this possibility of being a solution to answering the question of whether that divorce functions as um, simply as shtika, as silence, or whether it actually uh, ratifies the vow. 
And again, we're left saying, okay, but so so now what? Like we don't have a solution to this answer. Um, and the answer is that we don't have a solution to the answer. Yeah, it's a, it's. I think this is like a really good passage to show how Gemara works, right? It's the, they start with a question, right? What What is the status if he divorces her, right? Is it uh, confirming the vow or revoking the vow? And then they basically comb through all of the literature they can find and try to figure out the solution. And it's really sort of just an intellectual exercise. They don't actually come up with a solution. Um, but I think they're trying to explore what the parameters are of this idea of revoking. And it, it teaches us something by looking at all these different cases. What does it mean to confirm a vow? What does it mean to revoke a vow? But it's, it's, it's a completely intellectual pursuit here. Right, yes. Okay, I'm going to move on to the Mishnah on the next page, uh, which teaches us sort of an interesting custom that used to take place uh, prior to marriage. It is the practice of Torah scholars. That before one's daughter would go out of his, you know, buy it out of his jurisdiction, we would say, right? Well, she's still in Arusab before her Nisuin. Omerla, so the father would say to her, right, all the nizarim that you vowed in my house are now revoked. And so too with the husband, before she enters his jurisdiction, right, he would say to her, all the nizarim that you have vowed before entering my jurisdiction are now revoked. So, right, so what we would have here is that we know this Nara Mersa, right? This Nara who's, who's just on a Rusin, uh, both her husband and her father have to revoke her vows together. Once be- she comes a Nisua, once she becomes fully married, nobody can revoke any of her prior va- vows. So therefore, uh, it was the custom that if the father and the uh, husband were Tamidei Chachamim, they understood the law, what would they do? They would make sure revoke any of her vows so she sort of would start the marriage with a clean um with a clean uh with a with a clean state for when she enters his jurisdiction he would not be able to revoke any of them and so i think when you read this mishnah you know and as we've been trying to sort of figure out what this means that she sort of lacks agency that either when she's under full jurisdiction of he can revoke her laws, or after Nisuin, her husband can revoke her Nizarim. Um, that, you know, when they're in this in-between stage, that both the husband and father can do it. Um, in this particular case of being a Nara Arusa, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, sort of that the, it seems to be that the kinder, nicer, better way to do it was that they would just quickly revoke all of her questions would come up. I, I don't know. I read this Mishnah in a kind way. Um, I, I like your reading. I think this works. I think it works. Right. I, it's not, it, it's not, it's not, I don't know. It's not as misogynistic as it has felt for me in the past of sort of like a koach or whose house is she in or things like that. Okay. So the Gemara starts with the following question by Rami Barhama. Rami Barhama asks, 
is, can a husband revoke a vow without hearing about it? In other words, when the husband comes here and says, I'm just revoking all of your vows, he may not even have heard any of those vows. So is he allowed to do that? And so they quote this pasuk, right? The pasuk in, um, you know, explicitly says, right, that, you know, and the husband heard. So, you know, so this is, you know, part of these pasukim in Bamidbar in chapter 30, right? Oh, so they basically say, or is this meant to be specific or not to be specific? In other words, does he actually have to hear them? Because if that's the case, then this Mishnah may not make sense. Um, Arava, so Rava says, Toshma, come and learn a proof from our Mishnah. Right? That, you know, again, the way of the Torah scholars was that until the daughter left his house, Omer la kol nizarim shenazard kentok beti mufarim. Based on this Mishnah, actually, the proof is in the Mishnah. They don't actually in order to revoke them. So the Gemara rejects it and says, Maybe this Mishnah only applies when he hears a vow, he can actually revoke them. So the Gemara responds and says, So if that's the case, then why do they need this declaration that the Mishnah talks about altogether? Right? If he heard a vow, then he should just go ahead and revoke it. The idea is, is that the Mishnah has vows that neither of them heard, and that's what they're revoking. So the Gemara answers, Ha kamash malan. This is what the mission is teaching us. It's the practice of Torah scholars to seek out from his daughter to figure out if she had vows and to revoke them. In other words, they would sit her down and say, did you make any vows? Let me make sure I'll, I'll revoke them beforehand. So that's their first solution to this. Then essentially what's going to happen is for the rest of the stop, they're going to be other resolutions to this question. So they start with another one, Toshma Misefa. Maybe you can learn it from the latter part of the Mishnah. Right? We can learn it from the statement of the husband that until she comes into his reshut, he says to her also the same thing that all your nizarim are revoked. Right? So again, he didn't hear them. The Gemara rejects this as well. So here too, we could say maybe he should have heard them. And the Gemara again resolves it. Looking at this Mishnah, right? So this is a Mishnah. Uh, that we're going to see 75 and I and hey, how merely show if somebody says to his wife, that you make until a return from such and such a place, they are confirmed. He said, it's like as if he said nothing. If Alazar says they are revoked, but remember, the point here is he didn't hear any of these because he's saying the Nadarin that you're going to make. So these are not Nadarin that he heard. He can proactively um, go ahead and revoke them. The Gemara rejects this as well. We could also say this is a case where he says, or these are vows that should be broke when I hear about them when I return. So the Gemara answers, So then why does he need to say that they're revoked from now? Right? Then, of course, he can revoke them. So his reason is, perhaps I'll be preoccupied. You know, you're busy when you get home from a trip. He'll hear about the bad and he'll sort of like forget to take care of it. And so he does. And the Gemara is going to continue with this, trying to find other halachic proofs or resolutions to this uh, particular question. But again, 
similar to what you talked about, Anne, this is a question that I think is just trying to parameters of how does this work? Does it have to be something that he actually hears, either the husband or the father? And I think at least on this stop, the Gemara is basically leaning towards it's not something that they have to hear. I think the I think that's where it becomes such a puzzle, right? Because the premise of the ability of either husband or father to kind of revoke the vow is because he's right, he's there. Or I again, this seems to you know fly in the face of that, but he's there to do it, like essentially as if it's on the spot, and that seems to no longer be part of our assumptions. Yeah, I and uh, right, I agree with you. I think that's what's. I, I think you said it exactly right. That's what makes this whole issue like complicated. What do you mean he didn't hear the vow, but yet he can revoke it at the same time? Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP and our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 